This is Murder in the Rain, where each week Emily Rowney, Alicia Holland, and Josh McCullough tell true crime stories of the Pacific Northwest. Murder in the Rain contains graphic content. Listener discretion is advised. On a silent August night in 1967, screams ripped through the darkness in Glacier National Park, Montana. A visitor to the park, camping under the stars, was attacked in their sleep and dragged away from camp. When an injured survivor of the same attack stumbles upon another camper hundreds of yards away, it triggers a frantic, middle-of-the-night search and hopefully rescue mission, crewed by both brave park rangers and overnight visitors, who hours later would hear word that miles away There had been another attack that night, and another camper dragged into the woods. Every year, about three million visitors travel thousands of miles from around the globe to take in the sights at Glacier National Park that can only be described as, quote, heaven on earth. Originally the home of Blackfeet, Kootenai, Shoshone, Cheyenne, and Flathead Indigenous Americans, it was officially recognized as a national park in May of 1910. The park's location, technically in the Pacific Northwest, is near the Idaho Panhandle and borders Alberta and British Columbia to the north. It is truly hard to put the pure, natural beauty of the park into words, and that's just from looking at photos. I can't imagine how breathtaking it would be to see in person its one million acres encompassing over 700 lakes, 100 waterfalls, meadows of wildflowers, and forests teeming with a variety of trees, lilies, and berry plants. Quote, Prairie grasslands spread eastward across the drier plains. Mountain goats and bighorn sheep inhabit the highest elevations. Black and grizzly bears roam the woods, as do deer, moose, and elk. Unquote. In 1850, there were 150 namesake glaciers in the area. By 1967, there were 50. And today, there are 25. By 2030, there may not be any. An area offering jagged mountains for hiking and climbing and immeasurable options for leisure and sightseeing, the park found a new audience of campers and tourists in the 50s and 60s, when cars, campers, and camping gear had become more affordable and popular. By 1967, half of the U.S. population was under 25 and looking for an adventure. Glacier National Park, which was enjoying a 90-degree summer that year, was a uniquely paradisal place to have one. The centralized, and now fairly easy to reach by vehicle location, saw many more humans finding their way into nature, sometimes oblivious as to the dangers it inhabited. Land that had been untouched for millennia was being muscled out by construction sites for chalets, cabins, and roads. One such location was the Granite Park Chalet. Located on the west side of the Continental Divide, it sits atop a rock outcropping, which overlooks a breathtaking vista and houses overnight guests in its 12 rooms, each containing between two and six bunks. It has a pit toilet, no running water, and requires guests to prepare their own meals in the shared kitchen. This place is not for the glamping set. The chalet is two stories tall, 48 feet square, 
sided with stone and topped with a timber roof. It can be accessed by a trail hike, just about seven and a half miles, but the work is worth it to see what's been described as, quote, nothing more than an oversized blockhouse, an inflated version of a Swiss mountain hut, unquote, sitting like the gem in a crown on the hillside, overlooking Heaven's Peak, Swift Current Pass, the Garden Wall, Grinnell Glacier, and fields of alpine flowers and sapphire blue lakes. By the way, for those that are like me and have no idea what the Continental Divide is, I now know it isn't necessarily a vertical division of the Americas, but the dividing lines of two river systems. Your river is east of the Continental Divide. It's going into the Atlantic, west, Pacific. There are two lakes along the southern border of the park. McDonald, the park's largest lake at 10 miles long, two wide, and 472 feet deep. Wow. I know. Glacial lakes, man. Those are cool. And Trout Lake, which is two miles long, and in this writer's opinion, is shaped like a strip of delicious bacon. The lakes are separated by the north-to-south-oriented Howe Ridge, which has an elevation of 3,000 feet. It was nearly 1 a.m. on August 13th, and Don Gullett, a 20-year-old hiker who was visiting Glacier for some of the park's 700-mile-long trail system, was stirred awake by a noise off in the darkness. He was passing through the park, heading north through the Rockies, to Canada, and then back again. He thought he'd been awoken by a dream as he stared wide-eyed into the, quote, wall of night before him. There was no light pollution, and I mean none. No houses, no streetlights, no headlights or planes overhead. The only source available was from the moon above, and that night, it was barely more than half full. Earlier that evening, Don had met a married couple, Janet and Robert Klein, both 23, inside the Granite Park chalet while they were hunting for a spot in which to spend the night. All of the chalet's rooms were booked, the chalet offered the rugged camper's floor space, available to rent for $25 per person. That seemed an outrageous price, so the clients decided to rough it overnight outdoors. If they were going to sleep on the ground, it might as well be for free. It had been a busy summer at Glacier, the busiest in its history, with nearly a million visitors that season, and there was no more room at the inn. Between 60 and 65 visitors slept under the same roof that night. A lack of accommodations was not the limit of the Kleins' misfortunes. On their first day hiking in the park, the 12th of August, Robert and Janet left their, quote, fancy new Japanese camera at a picnic site, and by the time they realized their mistake and returned to fetch it, it had vanished. But that would be the least of their worries compared to the horrors they would come to witness that night. Don Gullett, who awakened to a noise in the surrounding blackness, had planned to sleep under the stars that night. Half a mile from the chalet, next to a rustic cabin on a trail. Earlier, at the chalet, Janet Klein, noticing the sleeping bag fastened to his back, had approached Don and eventually asked where he'd be sleeping, hoping to find a decent spot for her and Robert. Don told her about the trail cabin. Deciding to stay with their experienced new friend, they headed to the cabin together and made camp outside, 20 feet behind the cabin and another 30 from Don, probably for some adult forest privacy, you little pervert. From the cabin, looking southwest and downhill, Don and the Kleins, which is a great band name, could see a campground several hundred yards away, which sat along a fork of McDonald Creek. The Kleins made dinner, and I'm not sure if they shared with Don, but either way, after the meal, Janet and Robert carried their trash up to the chalet's garbage cans, 
and upon returning, covered their provisions with plastic and hauled them to the top of a fir tree with rope. They were, after all, in the perceived safety of a national park, but knew there were dangers lurking, so they didn't hesitate to follow park rules. They were alert, but unaware that they were headed for a collision of man and bear, teeth and flesh. Being aware of the ever-present but historically human-averse grizzly bears that inhabited this section of the park, the Kleins and Don Gullet made a plan to climb the conveniently ladder-like sides of the cabin at the first whiff of a bear, whether the whiff be caught by nose, ear, or eye. With many miles of hiking leading up to this campout, they were all fast asleep by 10.30 p.m. And now back to Don Gullet, hunkered down in his sleeping bag and staring into the night. He checked his watch, 12.50 a.m., and rolled over to find someone standing at the edge of his sleeping bag. Don's breath caught in his throat. The figure was that of a teenager. Getting a better look when the light of the moon caught his face, Don realized it was a boy named Roy Ducat that he had met earlier in the evening, who proceeded to fall to his knees, then flat on his back in front of him. The boy was in shock and babbling, quote, a bear got a hold of me. I tried playing dead, but it didn't help. He dragged her off in the brush. Oh, please forget about me. The bear dragged her away. Can't somebody go and find her? Unquote. Don rose from his sleeping bag, thinking Roy was joking, until he saw that Roy's arm was dangling loosely, as though torn from the socket, and blood was drenching his pant legs. Don helped Roy crawl to the client's camp, during which the teen frantically repeated, over and over, that the girl had been dragged away, and that somebody had to help her. Reaching the Kleins and the trail cabin, Don, who found they too had been awakened by the screams, instructed them to get on the roof and signaled the chalet for help with their flashlight, while he waited on the ground with Roy in case the bear returned. The light's batteries quickly became weak. Robert Klein asked Don for an update on Roy's condition, and Don replied that it was bad and getting worse. Roy was losing blood rapidly, and he would be near death soon. Then, a light began to blink back at them from the chalet, after which a voice called down, asking if they were okay. The landscape's deep valleys and encompassing mountains allowed for voices to carry up the hill to the chalet and down to the cabin. Robert shouted back, No! with all the strength he could muster. As Roy inched closer to death, he told Don what had happened. Sleeping soundly, he had been awoken sharply by a harshly whispered voice. It was his friend and co-worker, Julie Helgeson. Her shaken but serious words stopped him from any annoyed feelings he might have had about being awoken. Play dead, she told him. Without a moment to unpack her command, quote, a single blow from a huge paw knocked both of them five feet away on the ground, and the air was full of an unpleasant smell, as though a dozen dirty sheepdogs had come in from the rain, unquote. Roy was launched landing face down, with Julie landing just a few feet away. Before he could get his bearings, something bit into his right shoulder, stabbing so deeply through his skin it hit the bone. Even through that excruciating pain, he somehow maintained his silence and his play-dead posture. It was a massive grizzly bear. Quote, I remember him jumping on my back. He bit me on the back. I remember his breath was really bad. The most horrible stench I ever smelled. I couldn't fight him." Unquote. Inexplicably, the bear stopped biting him and moved on to Julie, looming over her. It is unclear whether or not she was conscious at the time, but she remained quiet and ragdoll limp as the bear began to tear into her. 
injured and still playing possum, Roy watched in horror from the corner of his eye as his friend was ripped into. That lasted only a moment before he had to squeeze his eyes shut. When the animal took a break from her, it returned to him. As his body screamed in agony at this second mauling, the 18-year-old held his composure and remained still until the bear again moved away from him and returned to Julie. Sadly, that's when Roy learned Julie had been conscious through the attack, as she screamed out, quote, It hurts. Somebody help us. Unquote. Her cries accompanied by the sound of her bones crunching between the bear's jaws. Her scream sounded to be moving away from him. As Julie's voice grew distant, Roy figured the bear was dragging her mutilated body off into the brush. In shock at the attack, the loss of blood, and his dying friend, Roy ran around the campsite, using his camera's flash in an attempt to scare the grizzly away, but he stopped when he looked down at his body. His arm was mangled, and what remained of it was dangling loosely. Julie's screaming stopped, and Roy, severely injured and bleeding to death, ran uphill, where he stumbled upon a shocked and sleepy-eyed Don Gullet. Quote, Anatomically, the grizzly is a magnificently designed machine with heavy, powerful muscles and a collection of joints that are loose and flexible, similar in principle to the universal joints of an automobile, enabling it to function from almost any position. The teeth are canine, and the molars are larger than life. The jaws are powered by two massive muscles that enable the bear to crunch through almost anything. Unquote. Before being attacked in their sleep, Julie Helgeson, 19, and Roy Ducat, 18, had met earlier that summer. They had both been working their first summer season at Glacier, Roy being a busser for the chalet's restaurant and Julie working in the laundry at East Glacier Lodge. Roy was a former lifeguard and a current sophomore majoring in biology at Bowling Green State University in Ohio, his home state. Julie, two years out of high school, was active in her church and was deeply interested in nature. Quote, her father described her as a beautiful, bubbling girl, unquote. Earlier that week, Julie's parents had made the trek to the park from Minnesota, where Julie was a student at the University of. It was a brief two-day visit, after which they returned to their home in Albert Lee, Minnesota. After becoming fast friends and wanting some time off together, Julie and Roy were going on an overnight campout, Julie's first, and one she'd worked the courage up for during her two months working in the park. She and Roy packed their camping gear and sack lunches from the lodge's kitchen before taking a 20-mile hitchhike north on Highway 89, then west at St. Mary's Lake on going to the Sun Road. They disembarked at Logan Pass, taking the High Line Trail to Granite Park and arriving at the chalet nearing 7 p.m., meeting by chance and making chit-chat with both Don Gullet and the Kleins. It was after 8 when Julie and Roy took the trail to the campground, briefly speaking once again with Don and the Kleins as they passed the trail cabin. As they reached camp, Julie and Roy saw that the site's Granite Park Campground sign was detached or had fallen from its post and lay on the ground before it. They rolled out their sleeping bags and sat atop them eating their sack dinners as the sun went down. After the meal, Roy took their leftovers and placed them under a log hundreds of feet away to keep animals away from their spot. Once night fell, the teens eased into their sleeping bags, chatting away before drifting off to sleep. Quick question. 
from what you saw, were they romantically together or they were just friends at the park that were adventuring? There was, I didn't get any indication that they were like a romantic couple, oh, no. That's cool. But they could just have curious. been. Yeah, hopefully, yeah. I like to think they were just buds. As the bear mauled Julie and Roy, many of the chalet's guests were alerted to the trouble and roused from sleep by the muffled screams that began rolling up the hill. Unsure at first of what they were, a distinct human scream, and then, God help me, he's stabbing me, got everyone within earshot to their feet. Innkeepers Nancy and Tom Walton, and the only ranger on site, Joan Devereaux, 22, were woken by the group of terrified guests that needed an authority figure to tell them their next move. The Waltons and Ranger Joan were skeptical at first, believing that nothing serious had taken place. Several guests were now standing outside of the chalet, listening for anything at all in the wild silence. One of the group, Dr. John Lipinski, cupped his hand to his mouth and shouted downhill, asking if everything was okay. From the direction of the trail cabin, a male voice shouted, No! Dr. Lipinski asked what kind of trouble, and the voice responded, Bear! A search party was formed. Tom Walton, three young women from the kitchen staff, Dr. Lipinski, and another doctor, Olgeard Linden, Ranger Devereaux, a Montanan named Monty Kuka, and several other guests, making 14 in all. Two of these other guests were Father Tom Connolly and Steve Pierre, who were longtime friends and hiking enthusiasts. There were no weapons in the chalet, so the party was armed only with flashlights and kitchen knives. As they gathered to leave, Steve Pierre said that, quote, there was only one thing on earth that would frighten a crazed bear, and that was fire. So Father Connolly helped Steve fill a metal tub with scrap wood and set it alight. The group began to move toward the campground, and the old friends dragged the bucket of fire between them. The search party reached the trail cabin without incident. Coming around the last bend, Dr. Linden asked for a first aid kit upon setting sights on Roy Ducat on the ground, draped in a sleeping bag and covered in blood. The group realized they hadn't brought one, but luckily, Robert Klein, who I imagine had climbed down from the cabin's roof, did have one. Lit only by quickly weakening flashlights and the glow from the bucket of fire, the doctor went to work, tending to Roy's wounds with compresses and tourniquets, while Monty Kuka pulled down a set of bed springs that were nailed to one of the cabin's windows as a bear deterrent. Several of the men in the group then lifted the now-prone Roy with the sleeping bag and lowered him onto the bed springs. Hoisting Roy up on the bounciest stretcher ever, their hike back took a wrong turn, stretching the ten-minute return into thirty. Ugh, of all the times. When the party finally made it to the chalet, Roy was carried inside and placed on a dining room table. Throughout the hike back, Roy asked over and over about Julie and if she'd been found. Half of the searchers remained at the trail cabin, expecting to search for Julie. If she was somehow still alive, she needed help as quickly as they could muster it. Ranger Devereaux had stayed back at the cabin as well, radioing for help. A first-year ranger naturalist at Glacier Park, Joan had led her first group nature hike that day, shepherding 36 souls from Logan Pass into Granite Park with an overnight stay in the chalet. Finally connecting with a voice on the other side, she relayed the shocking information. There had been a bear attack, and they needed emergency assistance. The radio squawked a big 10-4 from seasonal road patrol ranger, Bert Gildart, 27, who said he was on the move in his patrol car and instructed Joan to hold while he contacted fire headquarters. 
After a few minutes of waiting, she was connected with Fire Control Officer Gary Bunny and began relaying the details of the bear attack, informing Bunny that they already had doctors on site. Do not send personnel, but do send medical supplies. The ranger handed the radio to Dr. Linden, and he listed, quote, sutures, transfusion apparatus, plasma or whole blood, morphine, gauze, unquote. After Bunny signed off to call the cavalry, a suggestion was made by Dr. Linden that the remaining group should search for the missing woman, Julie. The ranger thought it over for a moment before declaring that they would instead return to the chalet and wait for backup, armed backup, to arrive. Ranger Joan knew that would have been a bad move to head off into the woods in the middle of the night, having no idea in which direction Julie had been carried off and with minimal light source. It was not worth them all getting attacked, injured, or killed to save her. As the group returned to the safety of the chalet, shrinking away from the dark and as near to the fire bucket as the heat would allow, Father Tom asked Steve Pierre if the bear could possibly return and attack the entire group. Steve replied, quote, Everything is possible with bears. Unquote. Sure, bears, like any wild animal, are unpredictable, but there had never been a recorded fatal attack by a bear. The odds of them, or anyone, being struck again seemed practically non-existent, and the last attack on record occurred in 1956, and the one before that was in 1939. Back under the chalet's roof, Joan was radioed by headquarters, informing her that a helicopter containing an armed ranger and their desperately needed medical supplies was 30 minutes out. A guest then approached and told Joan that he was a doctor and would like to help. The ranger was astonished that, against all probability, there was not only one doctor in the building that night, but three, and a registered nurse. Shortly after learning this, Dr. Linden, who had tagged out surgery duties with Dr. Lipinski, announced quietly that Roy Ducat would survive his injuries. With the chopper closing in, piloted by badass whirlybird man John Westover, 20 guests were conscripted into clearing a landing site on a flat spot behind the chalet, setting fires in the area's four corners to create a makeshift landing pad. Using flashlights to get the pilot's attention, the guests nearly brought the bird down as the lights bounced off the plastic bubble of the cockpit, illuminating everything around the pilot, making it impossible for him to see the ground. Westover radioed for the flashlights to be pointed down to illuminate the ground, and he was able to put the helicopter down within the improvised pad, delivering all the necessary medical equipment, except for an IV needle. Learning this, Dr. Lipinski insisted young Roy be airlifted immediately to the nearest hospital in Kalispell, Montana. From landing, loading, and takeoff, these actions took only 15 minutes. After Roy Ducat was safely airlifted out, Ranger Devereaux spoke to Gary Bunny, saying, quote, Now we've got to go find the girl. The second search party headed out at 2.45 a.m., two hours from the initial attack, with Officer Bunny and his 300 Winchester Magnum rifle in the lead. Following Bunny were, quote, Steve Pierre, the innkeeper Tom Walton, the geologist Robert Klein, the priest Tom Connolly, the doctor Olgierd Linden, the strong young man from Montana, Monte Cuca, Don Gullet, and six or eight others, unquote. Father Tom and Steve Pierre again pulled the tub of fire on the ground between them. Minutes after the group departed, they came across fresh bear scat 
still steaming. Bunny told his men to stay behind him, out of his line of fire, and to shine their lights in the bear's eyes if it returned. That would be their only chance to turn it away, and it was a meager one at that. All hands of the party also kept up volleys of shouting and noise-making to repel the bear. Reaching Julie and Roy's campsite, they found gear and the couple's sleeping bags, torn and tossed about the ground. They found a trail of blood heading uphill and concluded that it was from Roy, dripping blood as he unknowingly stumbled upon a sleeping Don Gullet. There was also a pool of blood a few feet downhill that trailed into a section of trampled brush. The group spread out from there, moving cautiously, shouting for Julie to answer them. They knew the bear was nearby and could easily rush them, and if it came to a fight, there would be little hope of survival for any of them. The search fanned out further, and soon Steve Pierre called out that he had found specks of blood. The group bunched behind him, and after moving only a short distance further, Steve found Julie's purse, spattered with blood and containing a single dollar bill. The blood specks petered out there, and the party had no choice but to fan out again, heading down, down, down. After another several hundred yards of searching, they heard a soft sound. Officer Bunny called for quiet, and they heard it again, a little further down the slope, and angled to their left. A voice, soft and pained, crying for help. Reacting with instinct, the entire search party abandoned the tight formation in which they were moving and broke out in a frantic run through slapping, cutting brush, with their flashlight beams barely cutting the darkness, and finally reached Julie's position. Quote, The girl lay on her face in a hollow. Her body was ripped and torn, and she was covered with blood, and to the first observers, it appeared impossible that she could be alive. Unquote. When Dr. Linden kneeled at Julie's side, she said, It hurts. Her hair was matted with a mix of blood and dirt. There were punctures and tears in the flesh along the backs of her legs, and nothing but bone between the hand and elbow of Julie's right arm. Her chest was punctured, and one lung had collapsed, with sucking wounds that seeped foamy blood. A small group ran back to the cabin to rip down another set of bed springs for use as their second stretcher of the evening, while Dr. Linden tended to her mauling injuries. Julie said she was cold, so most of the group removed their outerwear and blanketed her body. It had been two hours since Julie's screams first reached the chalet, and the doctor was amazed that she was still alive, let alone conscious. The party then returned to the chalet without incident, carrying the nearly bloodless woman into the dining area and laying her on two pushed-together tables in the de facto trauma unit. Ranger Joan Devereaux was running this part of the show, preparing the room, organizing and laying out medical supplies, and assembling the plasma bottle, tube, and needle for a transfusion. Dr. Linden, now examining Julie in a more controlled environment, could see that the injuries she'd endured were far more severe than he'd first assessed. She had lost a staggering amount of blood, so much so the doctor was unable to find a vein in which to insert the IV. Her veins had collapsed from being drained, and it took many attempts, including reaching into her injuries, until he finally found a viable one in Julie's wrist and administered the plasma. I never really thought about that if you didn't, like if your veins were so shredded deflated. or deflated yeah. that they can't get an IV, like how they handle that. Yeah, it was a uh, description I'd never heard of before of just it being white, 
kind of mushy, yeah. pale flesh that there was just no way to get into. Yeah. It makes me picture um, that scene in Black Hawk Down when oh, his, they have to go into his leg yeah. to try to stop the artery. Oh, yeah. Oof. But, you know, with only a couple of doctors and tables, din- dining tables. Yeah, that's from. impressive. They could do anything. Yeah, I think um, Lipinski was a surgeon. Dr. Linden was just a general doctor. I think, you know. The odds of all of that, too. And then, yeah, yeah. it's just it's unbelievable. Like, but how lucky to have a surgeon and another supporting doctor and an RN. Yeah. Like, that's You basically have a surgical team. While Dr. Linden gave it everything he had, Father Tom Connolly moved to the end of the surgery table and began speaking to Julie. Quote, The doctors are doing everything that can be done to take care of you. And you know that God will watch over you and take care of you. Unquote. She responded weakly that she knew he would. Father Tom locked eyes with Dr. Lipinski, who was also in the trenches of saving Julie's life, and learned with just a shake of the doc's head that she was certainly going to die. Julie died at 4.12 a.m., but before her last breath, Father Tom asked for some water and baptized the dying woman with the sign of the cross on her forehead, giving her absolution for her sins. Her lips followed along as he gave her the act of contrition, and after the ceremony was complete, her breathing became erratic. Quote, she hiccuped once or twice and lay silent. Unquote. What is the, what was it, act of contrition? The act of contrition is just a, uh, it's a way of expressing sorrow for your sins. And I believe, I don't know forgiveness, but I know you're expressing sorrow, and then I think that God can forgive you gotcha. through the words of the priest, who is God's voice. Is that, and I don't know if you know this, is that something reserved for deathbed. dying people? Yeah, I believe so, yeah. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. So it's not, it's like the deathbed version of going to confessional. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Correct. Where they, they are able to, they clear them all. Right. All your earthly sins. Reset. Yeah. Again, very convenient a priest was around that for that too. as well. I know. And that, so, and that and she, was, she was she was a, a Catholic, Catholic yeah. yeah. Or Christian, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Unbelievable. By 5 a.m., Ranger Joan was finally laying on her bed after helping to make the dining area look like someone hadn't died there. Innkeepers Tom and Nancy Walton were on the front porch smoking the day's last cigarette. Steve Pierre and Father Tom were seated in canvas chairs to the side of the porch. Quote, They seemed to be staring into the night in the direction of the campground below. They appeared to be deep in thoughts of their own, and neither of them spoke. Unquote. Though none of them were naive to the brutality nature could dole out, they hadn't experienced, much less expected, anything like that to happen at Glacier. To keep the remaining guests safe, everyone was escorted out of the park at 10.45 a.m., reaching the trailhead around 2. As the stunned and saddened exodus made its way out of the park, you could only imagine what had been going through their minds. The horrors they had seen, the fear of another animal attack as they walked the path, the sadness for the loss of life. Even though an attack was never expected, the perfect storm of an influx of visitors, a lack of management response to concerns, and that time of year, in hindsight, the attack that killed Julie had been inevitable, but not totally unavoidable. Before an Italian man dressed as a Native American cried on the side of the road or woodsy owl hooted at us about pollution, 
there weren't a lot of measures in place to manage the refuse that comes along when man uses nature for pleasure. Littering was a major issue, and facilities weren't in place to manage it. The remains of human food scraps lured bears, deer, and other wildlife close to the visitors, instilling a lack of fear. As the animals grew more confident in approaching humans, humans did more in the name of entertainment. For example, the chalet's garbage had become so well-known by the bears as a great dining location, it started to become a draw for curious travelers that wanted an up-close look at one of the most impressive predators on the planet, the grizzly. This didn't seem to be harmful to the bears, and it helped pay the chalet's bills, so it wasn't like they weren't going to do it. The shocking but not surprising attack could be explained by bad trash management and other systemic failures, but what couldn't be explained was what Ranger Joan Devereaux heard from a fellow ranger, that within a few hours of the attack on Julian Roy, there was a second attack, a second man-eater grizzly, and another camper dragged into the darkness by a monster. This concludes part one of Grizzly Summer. Next week, I'll detail the second night of the grizzly's attack, and how both attacks and the near-constant bear-human encounters that season could have been prevented if anyone in power had listened to the deluge of concerning incidents reported by both park visitors and its rangers. Do either of you have a fear of bear? No. I have no fear of bear. I have a logical fear of it, mm. like I do of any large, large predator. predator with sharp teeth. You know, yes and no, because not every bear, grizzly bears, primarily. Because they're so big yeah. and they can be, you know, lured by that garbage and all that. And you're not going to survive if it yeah. attacks you, basically. And they can, I think they can all run three times as fast as a person or something like that. Right. Yeah. But the vast majority of bears, no. I think they're pretty darn cute, too. Like, you ever see those videos of, like, hunters in the trees and the bears, like, climb up and oh. visit them? I'm always like, oh, I want to pet one. If I was, like asleep and woke up to that it would be yeah the size would be so like incomprehensible and it would be so terrifying but from yeah from afar it's like oh you're like a big puppy dog how cute yeah and they also knew everyone who who worked around there knew that there were bears that that camping with them was just kind of part of the deal and no one had any fear and no one who worked for the park service or anyone else there instilled any fear in anybody so let's talk about that because i i kind of want to get into why you picked this story mm -hmm. um it sounds like the way you're going with it is this is a tragedy caused by humans could have been prevented that's a crime yeah is that how you're feeling basically yeah okay well, it's a nice change like, of pace for everyone yes, it's, it's murder yeah. by negligence yeah. yeah yeah that's interesting because there wasn't anything in place there yet they were having I mean, well, they, thousands of visitors a year, oh, like a, I mean, million a million at that, that time. Year, yeah. yeah. Um, and so they did. They did have policies in place. Don't feed the bears. And basically, as far as they were concerned, that's what was happening. Was but that the they garbage getting, was feeding them. Yeah, but they were. Yeah. It reminds me of there was a video I saw not very long ago, um, and I can't remember what animal it was, but everyone was like, "Look at this monkey! He's like a little person doing this thing." And uh, there were, I think, either like a zoologist or some sort of scientist was like. Humans have a really bad habit of humanizing non-human things, especially animals. And where we see we see animal behaviors communicating as we would. So it's like when your dog 
gets caught eating the garbage and kind of makes that smile. It's like it's saying, please don't kill me. And we're like, oh, look, it feels bad. Yeah. And I feel like with this, it's almost like there was a a silent agreement between the rangers and the and the property managers and the bears. They're like, oh, we all just coexist and they keep to their stuff and we give them food, you know. So it's almost like they 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 kind of did that like they put that humanization onto them to be like oh they get it yeah like they know that we're going to be out there it's fine and that's not how that works that's interesting that you bring that up i recently saw a video there's this viral video that's gone around forever about this guy like gets out of the military and his dog had been lost and he goes and he picks it up and it comes and greets him and everyone's oh, like oh uh. it's so sweet well, I saw a video of a woman doing a voiceover and she's an animal behaviorist and she picked apart every fraction of really? movement of the dog and it was not happy to see him. It was terrified and it was implying that maybe he was abusive and the dog was like, yeah, I'm finally away from this guy. And then he came oh. back. So it was just an interesting it's really easy to project uh-huh. how we see the world. It's like, oh, the dog's jumping and if we only jump when we're excited. Right. Yeah. It, it's very self-centered as humans mm-hmm. are, you know. That's a, that's uh, interesting you bring yeah, that up. Yeah, and that ego. I think that ego is a huge part to blame in this case because it's like that same idea of we know what we know better and yeah. we know what's going on. Or it's like it's you're cute. in their house. I'm an outdoorsy person. I think this animal is cute and it hasn't killed anybody yeah. yet, so it's fine. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. They should be like any national park should, we should keep a healthy fear right. in people of wild animals right. who are unpredictable and in their habitat. Yeah, just because a perimeter has been put around some acreage doesn't mean that like, and now all the animals are trained and like they'll wave at you. Something. Even yeah. zoos have animals mm-hmm. react, you know, in a way that isn't expected. So that was like scary. I know it wasn't, it's like, it's crime, not not like a traditional true crime, but it like that was it's scary sounding just the night and you're just out in the will like I have a hard enough time hiking in the daytime and not like rolling my ankle or falling off something so I can't imagine like as you're hearing screams and you know that this animal is out there and also like why did it do it is it rabid is it does it have the taste for human blood so now that we're out in the dark it's just like Mm -hmm. and also what we'll see next week is that it had never happened before so why is it suddenly happening? In the same night. Yeah. You know? And there are some factors that might have contributed to it. It but... reminds me of the <laughs> book I read when I was a seventh grader about a serial killer who trained grizzly bears to kill for him. <gasps> and wow. eat them? Eat the... And eat the people. I, you, this is, you talked about this in our first episode. Yeah, it really this is our first episode of Blooper. <laughs> it is. That, wow. was, that wasn't a true story. No, okay. not at all. But hey, it's like, I don't know. Animals and people are crazy. <laughs> no, but it's just that book really, really stuck with me. That was kind of my entrance mm. into to serial killer books. Right. What was, do you was know what that was called? Ah, I, can't, I could probably I would love to find, find out. That's I mean, so... I did a full on. I had to do a skit for my class where you did you acted out uh-huh. a scene from your book, and I went all out face paint <laughs> everything. My teacher thought I was like shining gold of an actress and wanted to put me in the musical. But anyway, (laughs) it's like part of me is going, what's going to happen in part two? Is that book really a true story? Right? (laughs) (laughs) Surprise. It was a guy training all his bears. Oh, Spoilers. 
well hey it's a nice change of pace yeah. it is scary it's important it's an important reminder to people that it isn't just humans that are dangerous dangerous yeah. that you need to worry about uh again live animal they are wild keep a healthy distance don't pet the bears and put your garbage away and put your food in a tree like grandma betty always said Zero five. F zero five. Two 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 two. Underscore. Underscore. Zero zero two. Zero zero two. Hey 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 ha 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 ha. Perfect. That's what they say to do. The clown college he went to. Where they learn to entertain. Sorry, it's another gangbang. You know, we just gang up. It's a little gangbang. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, guys. Oh, guys. Oh, guys. <laughs> oh. <laughs> we were sitting there and she like pretended to bite me. And she goes, I'm a furry. And I go, excuse me? She was a furry, you know, like furries. And I go, what do the kids today think furries yeah. are? And she's like, you know, people who pretend to be animals. And I'm like, well, honey. So like cat ears. And... and they're like hissing at yeah. school. And I go, in society, furries <laughs> is different. <laughs> If I were her, I would have been like, yeah, okay, been like, tell well, me everything. And I would have. Yeah. Um, but she didn't ask because we were so into the movie. <laughs> How do I sound? Great. Good? Okay. Fine, but obsessed with national parks. I, am. <laughs> I know. Are you like a furry for national parks? <laughs> <laughs> Nothing gets you going like a, a hat, a yeah. ranger hat. I'm a, I'm a, park, a parky. We just walk into a park and he starts rubbing on tree trunks. I told you stuff. not to bring up his buffalo costume. <laughs> buffalo! <laughs> oh, I need to go to the Cino bad. Oh, hell yeah, girl. <laughs> work, let's say it's a work a bonding trip. <laughs> oh, yeah, we can. We can, <laughs> we can uh, each get 50 write bucks out. Write it off. The... Write it off. Iliani. What is it? Iliani. Iliane. 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 Every time Iliane. I say it, it's different. Name, and she like started choking up. Wow. Telling me about how like beautiful it had been. So she's a furry for casinos. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> we could do this this summer. I also want to go to Banff. Yeah, me too. Girl, what? Banff in Canada. Banff? Yeah, it's like gorgeous camping oh. area. I don't think I've ever heard of it. You probably have seen a photo or something. Sorry, I'm not a furry for it. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I am about that Croatia waterfall that I can't pronounce, Kraka oh, yeah. or whatever. <laughs> I gotta go there. I am a, such a furry for that. <laughs> Luckily, gas is really affordable. Oh, shit. Yeah. <laughs> we could just like hitchhike. Yeah, I was gonna say, we'll hitch. We'll hitch. It'll be great. How Dumb. to do it? How to do it safely? I'll TikTok about it. It'll be life changing. <laughs> hey, guys, I'm getting into this cab of this man. He's kind of greasy looking, but he only has two knives in the back window. Knives Seems in the safe. window. <laughs> The knife rack. It's <laughs> the butcher block. I just went with it. That's all I could think of. We ran inside to go pee or something, or we, I think it was where we were doing the switch. And we look out, and she goes, "Andy!" And I go running out, and his head is stuck in the bag of Fritos or something. In the car. And, in the car. And, <laughs> and as he's stuck, he's still eating, so he's like throwing them into his mouth. And I'm like, "Andy, get that off your head!" It was so funny. We were all laughing so hard. Oh, I miss Andy. He was such a sweet baby. <laughs>
He was a real furry for garbage. He was a real furry. crisp throat muscles you got there oh yeah well, they're snapping you, popping god's currency or whatever she <laughs> that's, said. Right. that's right my tonsils can do things you never know tonsils yeah they help you never had a tonsil drop i don't think so well, i don't know and you've trained them to massage at the end or something i mean if you could hook it behind them hey i'm sure i've done it before Mm-hmm. I do find that topic interesting. <laughs> <laughs> land that had been un land that had been un tonsil job. Do you guys have your tonsils? Yeah. Yeah. Me too. They've come in handy. Yeah. <laughs> which overs look overs looks. <laughs> Sorry. Had to make fun. You, you must. We're having a gangbang for crying out loud. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we do here. Tonsil jobs and making fun of each other. <laughs> Furry work. Furries. Us, we're furries for each other. Your river is east of the continental. <laughs> I love that river. Your river is east of the divide. It's going into the lake. <laughs> there are two lakes along the southern border. Borden. The park's largest, largest lark. <laughs> largest lake, you mean? <laughs> I do. And they have, uh, well, never mind. Whose gurgle was that? And signal the shalai for. The shalai. It's hard to say. <laughs> shalai, shalai, hard signal to say. Signal the shalai. Little tonsil work. I was just going to say that. <laughs> Stretch those tonsils. Ew. What? Hello, I'm Abby from Downton. Welcome to my Downton. Are there sympathetic tummy growls? Maybe. Did we sink tummy I think growls? I, I, well, I'll go back to the recording and figure it out. <laughs> Stop falling so. in love with each other. <laughs> <laughs> it was a brief two-day visit, and they'd returned to their... <laughs> and sack lunches from the lodge's kitchen. <laughs> Before taking a 20-mile hitchhike north on Highway 89, did I say that weird again? Hang on. Highway to hell. Life is a highway. Tom Cochran? Tom Cochran, baby. I put deluge in my next case. You oh my son God. of a bitch. I better remove it. Get that deluge out of there. Back in the chalet, Joan was... Back in the chalet, I don't even know how to say that fucking word anymore. Murder in the Rain is a Cascade Media production. Written and hosted by Emily Rowney, Alicia Holland, and Josh McCullough. Edited by Josh McCullough. You can always contact us at murderintherain at gmail.com or through our website, murderintherain.com. If you just can't get enough of Murder in the Rain, for as little as $5 a month, you'll have exclusive access to bonus episodes at patreon.com. You can find us on all of the socials, and for more true crime, follow at M underscore Murder in the Rain on TikTok, and you can also listen to Alicia and Josh on their other show, Always Be My Sisters. And suck my balls. <laughs> <laughs>